0: Welcome to
1: the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas
0: Theological Seminary.
2: Welcome to the Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. And our topic for today is the Old Testament and archaeology. And I have with me uh, two guests: uh, Steve Ortiz from Southwestern Theological Seminary in in uh, Fort Worth, and Gordon Johnson, who is a professor of Old Testament here at Dallas. And we're going to consider how, uh, how how what we call the realia, how the things that we find in the ground and and on the earth and the remains of history that we dig up. Uh, help us to understand what's going on with the Bible. And so Steve, I'm going to ask you to begin by telling us a little bit about your background in, in working with archaeology and what you've, uh, what you've done, what, what you bring to this conversation in terms of your background.
3: Well, I'm currently the director of the Tandy Institute for Archaeology at Southwestern. Uh, we have three field projects. I'm one of the co-directors of Tau Gezer. It's a major research project and a major Old Testament site, one of the three cities that Solomon fortified. I'm a graduate of University of Arizona, a student of Dr. Deaver, one of the big names in Biblical archaeology. Mm-hmm. And I've been going to Israel, uh, consider myself a dig bum, you feed me, I'll dig for you. So <laughs> over 30 years of experience and probably over 10 sites or so that I've been a staff member of.
2: In all Old Testament
3: sites? or. Uh, from the modern period, as you know, a New Testament site sits on top of an Old Testament site, so uh-huh. even an Old Testament archaeologist has to work. go
2: through modern history. Has I to work their I way apologize down. for a <laughs> New
3: <laughs> Testament scholar to consider there modern go, history. Yeah, yeah, well, yes, but, we'll get by Jesus <laughs> yes, and go back
2: to the Old <laughs> yes. Testament. I know how that works. So that's great. Well, uh, And Gordon, what about your own experience in this area?
1: Well, Steve majors in archaeology and minors in the Bible. I major in the Bible and minor in archaeology. <laughs> okay. Uh, My training is in Hebrew and Ancient Near Eastern Languages texts, Ancient Near Eastern History. And I got involved in archaeology about 15 years ago, 20 years ago in terms of participating in Mm -hmm. digs. So I've been on about a half dozen digs just as a slave labor (laughs) Uh, and then as (laughs) as square supervisors. Uh, So my area is in terms of trying to keep my ear to the ground Uh and my eye to the page in terms of... What the archaeologists are discovering and how that relates and impacts the Bible.
2: Okay, you used a phrase that I probably have to interpret for people, and this will help us transition into how archaeology works and that. You said you were a square supervisor, Now I could listen to that and say, are you supervising squares, <laughs> or, or <laughs> what, what exactly does that mean? Well, when we, uh, as Steve
1: could give more detail on this, when we dig, we're not just digging down holes to try to find something. You plot out a five meter by five meter square, Mm -hmm. and you dig down layer by layer. Mm And so you have people that are digging, and then you have people, uh, a square supervisor that's watching mm-hmm. to make sure that things are not being destroyed too badly as we go down, <laughs> and then records what's being found. Because
2: you really have to be very meticulous about how you go down as you as you go, uh, and, and so uh, there's a lot of care. You don't just take a shovel and, and and dig down deep, right? Correct. And this is one of the issues with
3: archaeology. It's mm-hmm. even within archaeology we debate: is archaeology a science? Or is it uh, humanities, mm-hmm. and it's, it's both. We're discovering history, so historians are interested in the archaeological record, like Gordon is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there's that aspect, the scientific aspect, where the dig itself, where you have to control everything that's coming out, taking careful measurements, of uh, the recording system, and most um, field pro- projects involve, you know, several layers of staff. And so the square supervisor is the one that's right there watching everything, recording everything, and it kind of rests on their shoulders. And then you have a field archaeologist controlling several square archaeologists, and then you have the director where I'm at, where we don't do anything except
2: give orders. (laughs) Okay, so so you've got to give us a little bit of a, t- a taste of, of a field. Let, let's do this in two segments. Let's talk about archaeology in general, what it can and can't do for us, and then let's talk about okay, what is a dig like? Uh, what is how does that actually work? So let's let's talk about archaeology first. You know, some people's image of the archaeologist is kind of uh, Indiana Jones. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I had to do it. I mean, you knew it was coming. You know, uh, and so it's this guy who wears this great hat and it's pretty adventurous. And he's, you know, they do
1: wear hats, <laughs> <laughs> but it's not very adventurous. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, and uh, they kind of you – know, it, it, it's the quest you know, for the Holy Grail and, and ver- varieties of things like that. But it actually is a much more mundane process, isn't it? And, and what is it that actually we can, we can and can't learn from archaeology? Well
3: oh, that's a, a loaded question. Yeah, the history of archaeology has been treasure hunting. The mm-hmm. most people's perception of archaeology is you're going finding nice treasures.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And some of that is true. We're finding, you know, there's some important themes that help reconstruct history. But the majority of archaeology, if you think what archaeology does, we're historians that look at the material culture.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So where you gentlemen will be interested in the text, in you know, what's going on here, your iPad, mm-hmm. the text, I'm interested in the actual material components of this event that's going on here. And so I'll come and I'll study the table, the mics, the coffee cups, and try to reconstruct what took place here. Right. Or a textual scholar or biblical scholar will look at the text itself to reconstruct what happened here.
2: Yeah, except the the, the important thing here that that shows the connection between the two is, is that what you're looking at is actually the physical layout of where people lived, uh, the way in which uh, their lives were constructed, if I can say that, what the rooms that they lived in looked like, the utensils that they used, that kind of that's, – that's actually what you're finding, and, and, and that's what's you're, – you're helping to give a portrait. You're helping to put, uh, uh, if I can say, flesh on the bones of, of what is in a text. Is that, is that a, would that be a fair way to think about this? Yes, I would say more context. Uh-huh. We're placing that text within its,
3: as you said, cultural context, mm-hmm. historical context. Um, m- most people, you know, when they read the Bible, they think that's all of history. Mm-hmm. And they forget to realize that God's Word occurred over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. It occurred in many cultures. And so it just gives us that reflection of what God did and what he wanted recorded. But as a biblical archaeologist, I'm looking for all the other stuff, like you said, the the living conditions, how people lived, mm-hmm. um, a lot of things that aren't recorded in the biblical texts, mm-hmm.
1: even things like grain that you find that's in the ground, or just little skeletons of little animals and things like that, which for most people that are interested in the Bible would seem to be very trivial. But it helps to, it helps you reconstruct the culture and. The history of what was happening in the, in the life ways of how people lived.
2: Yeah, yeah, and we'll we'll come back to one of those examples because one of the topics we're eventually going to get to is camels, not pet camels, but uh, <laughs> but camels, and how how they are impacted by this. Okay, so that's what you're looking for. Um, another impression that uh, often comes with archaeology is, uh, and then when I'm done with this, I'm going to ask Gordy a question, but uh, is that is that the Bible uh, can be proved? By archaeology, and I actually think this is one of the, another place where people can sometimes be misled about what what archaeology is and is not able to do. How do we how do we deal with what archaeology can actually do for us, and what can it do for us?
3: Well, um, as I said, it gives us the context. Mm-hmm. It, it can prove the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, it can also disprove the Bible, depending. It, keep in mind that we find rocks bones, pottery.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And it's that layer of interpretation mm-hmm. that reconstructing history where we're all debating. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to argue if you found a rock right, or if that's a, a piece of pottery. We all agree on that. It's the significance of all that material culture put together to reconstruct, in this case, a biblical event or highlighting a biblical book. And one of the problems I have with students or when I teach Sunday school is most people have a simplistic equation? They find a verse in the Bible, and they tell me, "Okay, give me the archaeology for that verse."
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And it's like it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. It's you have the world that ancient Israel lived in. You have the recording of those events. God acting in that world, and uh, there's a, a many layers to get to that level of that biblical text, and so. Today, most biblical archaeologists aren't looking for that one you know, silver bullet that's going to address the question. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, we got to look at the whole world and reconstruct it. And so you need text guys looking at the text. You need material culture guys looking at the material culture. And somewhere we pull that together, and we're able to give a picture of how the biblical text was formed in its culture. And then the theologians come along, and how does
2: that apply to our lives? So so when you say prove or disprove the bible what you mean is is that archaeology's generated debates about that relationship and that actually there's a quite a lot of both gathering of material and interpretation that comes in into those conversations is that is that right? That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Gordy. Now, now, when you think about archaeology and what it a, is able to do for us, or what it's not able to do for us, what how do you how do you answer that question?
1: Well, Steve laid the you know he's laid it out very clearly. What I try to help the students understand is that philosophically speaking, you can't prove anything with a hundred percent certainty at all, mm-hmm. and so now we're looking at. Uh, what is a relative degree of certainty, and uh, so we have to have re- realistic expectations. Um, people on the far right, on the far right of fundamentalism, often are trying to argue that archaeology, you know, proves the Bible. And they're just looking for the silver bullet that Steve's talking about. On the other hand, people that tend to be more negative are looking for things to try to disprove the Bible. But what we're looking for is—I is, um, uh, tr- think that the key is that we try to adopt. We need to adopt attached neutrality. Mm-hmm. That we come to the text with no expectations, not trying to uh, prove or disprove, but just to lay it out and to see where the evidence goes.
2: Um, your point is—is is that what well actually you're digging up is you're trying to make sense out of the out of the out of the life that is reflected in the materials that are that are raised, and then... And then,
1: and the material that you find doesn't interpret itself. The stones right. don't speak. That's and right. So there's always an interpretation, in the same way with the Bible. The Bible's not self-interpreting. They're, you're always coming and asking questions of the text. And sometimes uh, the archaeology might point away from a traditional reading of the text. Mm-hmm. Some people might think, well, then it's disproving the Bible. It may be disproving my Sunday school of reading it. of it. That's, that's right. right. Yeah. And, and, and then demanding maybe a more sophisticated reading of that text. Mm -hmm.
3: Okay. For example, you take like Joshua's conquest. Right. In the old days, we'd go, okay, Joshua had a conquest. We should find a Pompeii. Mm -hmm. And so archaeologists went looking for dead Canaanite bodies strewn around Mm -hmm. the Promised Land. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, warfare is a lot more complicated. When you say you conquered a site, it doesn't necessarily mean you had death and destruction and you're going to find 90% of a site destroyed. We find burnt mud brick. We find in abandoned cities. Mm -hmm. And we put all that together. And probably the key word now that we deal with, and Gordon mentioned it, is historical plausibility. Mm We don't look for direct proof. This Mm -hmm. isn't like a, a, you know, logic or science where you add chemicals and you determine.
2: Yeah, I can't recreate historical events. They happen once, whereas Mm -hmm. in science, I get to recreate the circumstances and test whether or not something works or not. And we're
1: not trying to prove. What we're trying to Mm -hmm. ask the question is, can we make a sound case Mm -hmm. for the reliability of the text that you can take this text seriously? Mm -hmm. And we talk about the Bible. It's not going to be able to prove the the intervention of god mm-hmm. you can find the right stuff in the right place at the right time right but that doesn't archaeology can't put god there in the dirt in the spade right and what the bible's proving is that god was intervening here mm-hmm. so all we can ask is what we're finding in the dirt does it match does it fit as the right stuff at the right place at the right time with the, the, the harmonization between the Bible and archaeology.
3: What has helped me is all the CSI movies.
1: Because
3: mm-hmm. I can go, to, you know, because everybody's seen a CSI movie. Right, right. And I say, that's what archaeologists do. We find fragments of evidence mm-hmm. and we reconstruct. We, we know that an event happened. There was a crime here. Mm-hmm. There was a dead body. Mm-hmm. Um, who did it? Mm-hmm. Well, you got to find all the pieces of evidence to reconstruct. And what they do in the courtroom is provide a, the best picture or reconstruction of what they think happened based on the scientific data, um, rules of evidence, and that's what archaeologists are doing. We're taking those pieces, fragments, and reconstructing it. Now, in the case of the Old Testament, we're saying, is the Old Testament account historically plausible? Here's what we know. Does it make sense compared to the pieces of evidence we find on the ground? and that's where the debate happens and a lot of times it happens in the media and mm-hmm. that's where your audience will see you know see this archaeology yes
2: yeah okay well that gives us a feel kind of for what archaeology uh, can and to some degree can't do for us uh, let's let's turn to the actual dig itself and what that looks like so i i let, let, i'm going to try and picture this for people um, you walk up to a space and you think okay this site we think may have something there. Okay? You know, the technical term sometimes you hear is a towel. Um, uh, So I walk up and I'm starting from scratch. Uh, uh, What happens on a dig?
3: (laughs) 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 A chaos, actually. (laughs) Um, One normally – and Gordon kind of gave the process. What most well you people, start though with the trench cut yes. though. The well, trial trench cut yeah. on the side. What before. most people don't realize mm-hmm. is most these tiles that you mentioned, they're just mm-hmm. these mounds, they're the an ancient city right. that's been rebuilt and rebuilt. Right. And archaeologists, major projects probably only excavate about five or ten percent of that ancient city. Right. And so the first thing you want to do is you go like if I only have five or ten percent Where do I want to dig? Uh And that's when archaeologists will set up a a grid system. Mm -hmm. They do a survey based on other sites. So you kind of go like, okay, let's probably on the Acropolis is where the king lived. Mm -hmm. Maybe we want to dig somewhere on the Acropolis. Let's look for a low area where we think might be the city gate. Okay. Uh, uh, Gordon mentioned a trench. Mm -hmm. There's one section kind of like a cake. You go like, well, let's give a, a broad picture of the whole history of these cities. And somewhere we want to kind of, you know, dig this trench mm-hmm. where kind of like the, you just see the layers. Here's an example here, yep. the backdrop here, yep. of the various cities. Uh-huh. And so you kind of, um, as a director, set up five or six areas we are going to kind of address all these issues. And part of it's based on your research design. Mm-hmm. I'm an Old Testament archaeologist. Mm-hmm. I'm digging Gezer. Mm-hmm. Well, we have a major Hellenistic city mm-hmm. on Gezer. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in the Hellenistic period. hmm But I have to be responsible, so I'll try to find an area that doesn't have a lot of Hellenistic overgrowth on it. Hmm. Otherwise, I'm going to spend three years excavating A Hellenistic city.
2: Because you can't get the approval just to dig down to the layer that you're interested in. If you dig down, you have to work historically all through the layers. Isn't that regulated to some degree? Because archaeology is a
3: destructive science.
2: Yes, exactly. And
1: you can't do it a second time. You never get a chance to look at that square or that layer a second time. That's right. No,
3: what happens is an archaeological team has many scholars involved with it. Mm -hmm. So we'd get a Hellenistic scholar who's interested in that city, Mm -hmm. and so we'd say, okay, you're going to publish this, Mm -hmm. or you're scholarship is going to just be on this part of the city. Here, Mm -hmm. I'm interested in the city down here Mm -hmm. and so I'll be excavating
2: this part. Mm -hmm. And so you're talking about by saying down here you're talking about as you work through the layers you're actually working through the history from the more recent to the more ancient as you go lower and lower. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um.
0: This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host Amber Cullum. Each week I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com
2: So uh, I have all kinds of questions I want to ask that. So so basically you section this out and then you very Carefully, at least if you do this right, carefully and systematically work your way down a layer at a time.
1: And it's like peeling a layer off a cake,
2: right? Instead of digging holes. You know, I have a picture. Uh, I have a picture at Capernaum. I think is where it was taken. Where, um, where? Um, uh, actually, no. It's, it's Caesarea Philippi. Uh, no, Caesarea Maritima. Sorry, it's Caesarea Martema I have a picture, and and you can see the layers uh, beautifully uh, of. Uh, of clay and other things that take you down I don't know I have no idea how many years I'm looking at when I look at this is right on the edge of where the Hippodrome was and uh, it's a fascinating picture because it because it it illustrates not only uh, the layers but really how far down you have to go to get to the more ancient site Sometimes you're digging quite deep isn't Some that sites, correct? 15
1: 20 25 different strata yeah.
2: And how, and how deep would that be? I mean, how deep might that go? Each city's unique and different.
1: Uh-huh. Um, Jericho, you've got all the
3: yeah. way
2: back to the Neolithic, which is the first time that you've got. Yeah, but I'm thinking about how, cities. How, how how large. I mean, I I've visited Jericho. I mean, I have I have a sense of what that would be. But we're we're not talking inches here. We're talking feet and yards, right? Well, you mentioned uh,
3: Caesarea Maritime. Mm-hmm. Um That's the Roman you know city, Hellenistic city. Right. They they built their harbor, and it can be you know. Five meters can just be one layer of some support structure that they built. And so some of these sites, you have to use a bulldozer to remove that overburden. Uh, the example, I'm, I'm working at Gezer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm interested in the 10th century and the transition to statehood, mm-hmm. well, pe- the Solomonic period. period right. I've been there six years, mm-hmm. you know, six field seasons, mm-hmm. and I still haven't got to Solomon yet. Mm-hmm. And people are asking me, when you get. I go like, well, I have to remove the Hellenistic, I have to remove the 8th century, I have to. You're just killing people. Yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah, I'm still in 2nd Kings, I haven't (laughs) got to, you know.
1: Funny story, (laughs) I was at a site a number of years ago in which we were excavating at the city gate. There was one square that had gotten down to uh, late Bronze Age period.
2: Which is? Uh,
1: fifteen, 15 fifty, 50, 50 okay. fourteen hundred. Okay. Okay. It was the period, that, the area that we wanted to go to. We're talking BC, about. that's yeah, right. Okay. And so we decided to open up another square right next to it that I was doing, and we all wanted to get down to that level. Uh-huh. And we had the, the dig I was on. We were doing two weeks at a time. My students want to just dig down fast, and I said we've got to be careful because we don't know what's underneath the ground. And so I kept. And I know it.
2: you well enough to know that you're going to be careful. Yeah, way. yeah. And I kept holding him
1: back. and holding him back. And then we were getting right to the level that was almost level with the square next to us. Our time was over. The next group came in the following weekend for two weeks, and they were telling us afterwards, you wouldn't believe everything we found. The very first day, stuff started coming out of the of the dirt. And of course, my crew was mad at me. And I told, no, you've got to understand, we we help them to to set that up so otherwise we would have destroyed half of the stuff
2: if we'd gone down too quickly now one of the things that we often hear that and I think this taking the time to do this helps people is that sometimes what you hear the way sites are discovered is is that they're just building in the city they you know but Jerusalem in particular uh, I think is subject to this where they'll they'll dig down and as they're digging down for the you know to lay the foundation for building a building or whatever or constructing a highway or whatever it is all of a sudden they come across something and Israel is 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 very very sensitive about her antiquities, and so um, sometimes that can put a hold on a project. They care that much about their history. Is that is? Oh yes, and and and
3: we do the same thing here in the United States. Mm -hmm. We don't see it, but every time you build a new road, Mm -hmm. you have an archaeological survey. The only difference is in Israel, every. Piece of land (laughs) has history on it. So if you go add a you know a backyard deck, Mm -hmm. you're excavating a a mosaic or something, and Mm -hmm. that's just the nature of the site. Take the um, the Siloam Pool. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is famous. This is where Jesus healed. Right. And they were just redoing a sewer line. That's right. And they made this big
2: discovery just by a simple sewer line. And in fact, if you walk there today, uh, I think we're talking about the same site, you yeah, can, so you still, can see, still see, it. see part yeah, of yeah, the sewer surrounded through the site. I had to dig around that. I can understand why. And so, uh, uh, yeah, it, 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 you know, it's interesting how you hear about this. The, the one that I think about um, that I'm most familiar with directly, not because I've ever worked on an archaeological site, but because I've dealt with the with the, um, the hype that has surrounded it, was the Talpiot tomb. The Talpiot tomb were supposedly – they found these these uh, tombs with the name of Jesus' family on it. It was big about a decade ago. But that – they were building apartments. In fact, <laughs> you go there today and the apartments are all around it. So uh, um, they had to – and when they built the building, which is really interesting, when they ended up building the building, they ended up building it in such a way that they could preserve the contents of this site um, so that now if you want to see what's in there, you have to You have to drop cameras in there and that kind of thing. So it's 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 interesting um, the effort that's been made by people who are sensitive to this to try and preserve these spots uh, if they decide not to dig in them. Um, uh, But oftentimes, and this is one of the parts of the history that I think another uh, people may not be aware of is that in the past uh, some people were just diggers. (laughs) You know, (laughs) they just. They just went down and 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 tried to go for what they were going for. And as you mentioned, archaeology is a destructive science. So that once you dig it up and you mess it up, it's it's messed yeah. up.
1: Well, Jericho, the early the the last occupation levels at Jericho are just a mess mm-hmm. because the first number of digs in the late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds, they were just treasure hunting. Mm-hmm. Didn't know the initial dig didn't know even know what the site was, mm-hmm. and it was just messed up mm-hmm. and a lot of things that we might want to see you know are just are not available because they didn't keep careful records they were just digging and the
2: whole top layer is basically removed and th- this raises another issue that often comes up particularly when things are announced in the public and that has to do with um, it really is important to be able to try if possible to catalog where things come from what is around it that kind of thing and when things just show up in a shop, in an antiquity shop, shop, and it's undocumented or, or a scholar is just handled as with the Jesus wife's text – this is a New Testament issue – or actually a post-New Testament issue uh, – Jesus Wives text, and, and we don't know where it came from, uh, uh, anything about it. All we have is the paper and the ink. Uh, we, we really don't have much context to sort out exactly what it is that we're dealing with. Correct, and and it's important as you know we've illustrated here. Archaeology,
3: it, one of the key factors, is stratigraphy mm-hmm. or dating it. Mm-hmm. We need that object to know what level it came from, mm-hmm. and and like the, like the, the Talpiot tombs you mentioned, mm-hmm. these you know, Second Temple, you know, New Testament era, you know, bone coffins. Mm-hmm. It it makes we need to know if they came from outside of Jerusalem inside the city, mm-hmm. nearby, if they date, you know, to 30 B.C. or 30 A.D., right, which can right.
1: The expression is in situ, right. where it was located in the situation and documented and photographed. If any, if anything just shows up that was not documented in situ, archaeologically speaking, it just has to be discounted, because what do you do with it? Yeah. And, you know, there's a big debate about... You know you know where, where's the trail of evidence but it's unfortunate you you just don't know what to do with
2: it yeah and you see that happening with this Jesus wife text because we don't know I mean we know it's a Coptic text. We think we know the papyrus now has been dated to somewhere between the, it looks like the fifth and ninth century uh, AD. So it's a, it's it's a, you know, it's a it's a early Christian historical text, or fairly early. It's actually in the n- normal range of where some of our manuscripts are found for even for the New Testament, but they couldn't test the ink. Uh, because that would have destroyed the the small piece that you had. And, uh, And there are just lots of things about it we don't know. All we have are parts of eight lines. Uh, there's no context around it. We don't have anything introducing it. We don't know what the debate is surrounding the affirmation that's made. We don't even know if in the midst of saying that Jesus had a wife if there's another part of the section that says, oh, no, he didn't. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, um, so we're... so we're this li- is the
1: problem because a lot of the sites we want, we want to dig at, you can only dig with the credentialed uh, excavation a couple months of the year, and those mm-hmm. sites just lie open mm-hmm. the rest of the year, so people will come and rob those sites out, and they don't understand, you know, the importance of having it documented. They're just going to pull something out of the ground and say, here, I've got something, Mm -hmm. and they don't realize
2: that they're really doing a disservice. So there, there's a lot that goes into this. That's the point. I'm, I'm, we've been careful taking our time to do this because we want people to have a sense and a kind of a portrait of, of how this works and how complicated it can be. And it really is uh, – there really is a lot that goes into um, managing a dig. <laughs> you you have a reason to work, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, so is there anything else that we should say about just the, the the structure of archaeology or the way digs work that we haven't mentioned that, that uh, should be mentioned? as we're kind of overviewing before we look at some particulars? Well, one of the main things, especially within biblical archaeology
3: or archaeology of the Middle East, um, one of the unique features of the Middle East is the volunteer program. Mm -hmm. Most digs have professional archaeologists, which is very labor-intensive, time-consuming. But in the Middle East, they've used people who are just interested. So like at Gezer, I probably only have a staff of 20, mm-hmm. but 40 others are volunteers, students who've never dug before that are going to the Holy Land. And so most digs are a teaching program also. Hmm. So it's not like we just get slave labor. It's like Students come over, and we're just going to use these student for five labor, weeks. which some yes. people say
2: is the same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <it> is, yeah. <laughs> um, now this is Steve's. This
3: is setting up Steve for his advertisement. <laughs> uh, <yeah. Go> <laughs> um, but but that's uh, what's unique. And people ask me, what I go? I would love to just dig with the crew of twenty experienced archaeologists. Mm-hmm. Like Gordon gave the example, he had students on a dig. He had to fight them to dig properly. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, no, this is proper archaeology. I know you would love to get there, but you have to document it first. Mm -hmm. And
1: ironically, the young men, the young college students that are men are usually the ones you have to pull back the most because they've got their testosterone raging, and, and they want to dig down fast. It's actually the girls that are the easier to manage because they'll listen to you, and they'll go slow. Uh-huh.
2: Uh, I'm not going there. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's
3: one major component of Nearson digs, that study component, uh-huh. and it's unique. And you know, many people that will be listening to this podcast have probably gone on a dig or are thinking
2: of going on a dig. So that's what's – one thing you need. So if you go, you're going for a few weeks at a time, and you're working all day in the heat, and it's not glamorous. It, it really is a lot of work, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um. So be prepared if you're going to spend your money for your vacation <laughs> that way. That's what it, that's what it involves. Now, so do you go every summer, basically? Yes, I do. Yeah. Uh huh. And and you've been several times in the last several years. Been there, a that? number of times. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that that's kind of our overview. So um, let, let me let's transition. And let's talk about some specific uh, finds, and and in particular what we're interested in here is dealing with the hype that comes with archaeology a lot of times. And we're seeing this in in New Testament studies as well. So this is not a problem that's unique to the Old Testament. And I'm going to make an observation, and I just want to get your reaction to it. There there was a time in which uh, the way this worked is you did your dig. Um, you wrote up your study. You had it vetted by people who were who, who knew what they were looking at. It w- it was presented to the public in a very scholarly and organized kind of way. And there's a lot of study that still is done that way. But it strikes me that in the last 20 to 25 years, I don't know how much longer this has been, uh, but. Uh, that we've had a lot of things happen that don't work that way. That basically, a scholar has gotten a hold of a site, he's gotten, uh, or he's gotten a hold of an artifact, maybe more accurately, or a set of artifacts. And what he has done is rather than go through the normal vetting process and the normal scholarly process, um, he's connected with a media. Organization of one kind or another to promote what it is that he's doing. He he presents his case not necessarily before scholars in a vetted kind of way, but directly to the public. And we're off and running. (laughs) You know, I kind of remember the beginning of the Kentucky Derby. You know, and they're off, and boom, it's in the public square, and we're off and running. And we seem to have things backwards. Well, Uh, it's not done with sinister motivation. Yeah.
1: Archaeology is very expensive, mm-hmm. and money has to be raised, and in many cases, and, and even mustering interest in people being involved in it. So, part of that's understandable. It's it's a way of promoting it. Mm-hmm. But what happens is is that sometimes the story in the press gets gets ahead of
2: the, what we the, the actually the balance, know. That's right. Yeah. You know. So so oftentimes when we get the hyped event. What we'll get is the hype first and then the reflection. Uh, and really, we don't know what we have until we've gone through that entire process. Is that a fair way to kind of describe what's sometimes is happening today? Yeah,
3: and you have both. I, mm-hmm. I put out a press release every mm-hmm. season, mm-hmm. and I hope that Fox News will pick it up and uh-huh. it'll hit the you know uh-huh. – it'll make me famous and people <laughs> want to give money to the dig. Uh-huh. Uh, but I put a responsible – Press release out. Mm-hmm. I, I don't sensationalize it, and you know I'm tempted to say Jesus walked on the site. Just to, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I know but that is not yeah. historically accurate, um, and so I don't fault the archaeologist for
2: doing, some doing something like that. Yeah. Yeah. The problem I, is, now,
1: is that when the press, that they're often not as nuanced, and when an archaeologist will say might or could, the the press doesn't. Doesn't is not sensitive and it <laughs> they gets, don't parse yeah. that's right and it gets written up as yeah. it it was yeah, yeah. and yeah. so they don't always understand the the, the nuances and it gets, sometimes it gets overplayed that way right.
3: and there there's some scholars that like you said it's like you know what this is so sensational I should vet it with other colleagues mm-hmm. uh, this changes history mm-hmm. was Jesus really bur- buried south of Jerusalem—is mm-hmm. that where his family was? When mm-hmm. the, the texts talk about him being from Galilee, right? This is so sensational. You should present it yeah, with the family tomb meeting. even be in Jerusalem, yes, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. And would it be a wealthy tomb? You we know, he right. came from a poor. So there's a lot of questions where this should be presented to the scholarly community for them to vet it and say, "We, you, like the CSI situation. We've heard your case. Hmm. We think you have the evidence. You, you presented it." You know, this is you know, publish this.
2: um. Okay, well, let's go through some examples that that are recent that have that have made the public square. They've 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 hit the Richter scale, (laughs) if I can say it that way. Uh, And I I think of two in particular to start off with, two particular finds that uh, really um, hit the press. The beginning of this year, two thousand fourteen, and. And one of them had to do with the discovery of a text that described. I think it was was Babylonian, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. But anyway, or or actually, it's ancient, more ancient than that. It's Sumerian, yeah. Um, uh, But it describes the ark as a kind of of circle. Now I'm just a few weeks away from having seen Noah the movie, so (laughs) uh, so I know according to Hollywood that that. Ark wasn't round, okay. Uh, The ark that rode in the flood, and and of course we have several issues here. We have. The traditions about the flood that go outside of Israel, and then we have the texts that describe the particulars of that uh, event, which is a widespread tradition across many cultures. Um, and then we have this particular find, and so we heard in the press all kinds of things being argued about the significance of of what this meant. So I'm gonna, uh, I think I'm gonna start here because here we're dealing with the, the, the contents of what was found and what's described isn't debated, it's where it fits that gets debated. So here I'm turning to the historian amongst us and say, um, okay, so what should I do with this when I right. hear this?
3: Well, my first and reaction And I haven't seen was, the movie yet, so I'm not going to <laughs> okay. well,
2: yeah. right.
1: So my first reaction, and it was a student that sent me the link initially about, about this, uh, this arc, round arc text. Uh, I was happy that it was a University of Chicago professor uh, that was talking about this rather than just some hack mm-hmm. off the street. So, but – I'm always going to want to wait till the dust settles. I never want to just respond knee-jerk to a press release, but give it a couple of years, see what everybody says, and especially people that are specialists in the area. Mm-hmm. Not people, for example, with my level of training, I'm, I'm a Bible person first in an archaeology just by hobby, if you will, uh, not for us to weigh in on, but, but to wait for the people of the specialists to weigh in on. Now, as far as this text, When you said the ark, you know, Uh the the text tells us the ark is round. Well, we have to understand how this fits with all the ancient Near Eastern texts about uh, the flood. You've got going all the way back to Eridu is the first uh, ancient Near Eastern flood text, 26, 2800 B.C you've got Gilgamesh epic talks about the most, most famous one, yeah. you've got Atracossus which mm-hmm. is from about 1600 BC mm-hmm. and they all seem to be reflecting the same basic ancient or eastern flood account but the size of the ark grows as time goes on, mm-hmm. the length of the time that the waters came down grows. Gilgamesh epic you've got a seven-story boat Okay, and yet it oh, was a luxury liner. It's a luxury yes. liner, <laughs> <laughs> a luxury liner. And yet it was built from uh, him uh, Gilgamesh. I mean, uh, the push team tearing down his uh, reed hut. Mm-hmm. So the 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 size some well,
2: reed hut. Yes, yeah, some reed <laughs> hut. Well, it was it was seven <laughs> floors.
1: <laughs> so the size it, it the 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 legends in the ancient Near East or the tradition keeps keeps morphing. So. If we've got one that says it was round, okay, then this is how that tradition went in that text. It doesn't necessarily mean that the original boat was round, any more than it was seven stories high.
0: Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Join us next week for Part 2. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love
1: well.